Hello, everybody. I'm Warren Smith coming to you from Charlotte, North Carolina. And I'm Natasha Smith coming to you from Colorado Springs, Colorado. We'd like to welcome you to the Ministry Watch podcast. Each week, Ministry Watch brings you news about Christian ministries, as well as the latest in charity and philanthropy, news that we examine from a Christian worldview perspective, and our goal is to help us become better stewards of the resources God has entrusted to us. On today's program, we take a look at a group of hackers for Jesus, and a new study by the Hartford Institute says COVID has led to both innovation and conflict in America's churches. We begin today with more news from the Southern Baptist Convention. Yeah, Southern Baptist leaders here in North Carolina have announced plans to proactively review their state convention's response to the issue of sexual abuse. The review was approved on Monday, November the 8th, by the Executive Committee of the Baptist State Convention of North Carolina, and it'll look at current policies and procedures for preventing abuse and responding when abuse occurs. Todd Unzicker, the state convention's executive director slash treasurer, said leaders want to show churches that they take abuse seriously. He said this in a statement on Monday, if our churches do not see us as a convention being proactive in this, mistrust will happen. Was that comment a reference to the fact that the SBC's national body has been pretty slow to act? Well, probably so. Uh, North Carolina, though, joins at least five other state conventions in addressing the issue of abuse at their annual meetings. A lot of the state convention meetings do take place in the fall. In recent weeks, state Baptist groups in Georgia, Kentucky, Arkansas, Florida, and California have set up committees or task forces to address sexual abuse. Attempts to set up similar responses, though, did fail in both Mississippi and Missouri. The statewide responses follow very closely on the heels of a bitter dispute at the national SBC's Nashville-based executive committee, a, a committee meeting that we reported on pretty extensively here at Ministry Watch, over how to conduct an independent investigation into that group's handling of sexual abuse in recent decades. A national task force to oversee that investigation was set up at the uh, summer's annual meeting of the largest Protestant denomination in the country. The SBC is that. Uh, but members of the executive committee disagreed about how transparent the investigation would be and how many details should be made available to the public, especially conversations between executive committee members and staff and their lawyers. Well, this week we have more stories about sexual abuse as well. Yeah, that's right. The former pastor of an Alabama church has been arrested on charges of sodomy. Danny Dwayne Pitts of Hartsell, Alabama, was arrested on November 5th and charged with sodomy in the first and second degrees, according to a Facebook post made by the Hartsell Police Department. Pitts was formerly the pastor of Grace Point Church in Decatur, Alabama, and he was indicted by the Morgan County Grand Jury. I want to be clear, though, 
that this is an interdenominational church, not in any way affiliated with the Southern Baptist Convention. In August, uh, a local television station reported that social media reports had been circulating, uh, alleging that a pastor at that church had groomed and abused individuals. And one alleged victim, a former worship leader at the church, posted a video on TikTok Uh, detailing his abuse at the hands of the pastor and said that it brought responses from dozens of others who had had similar experiences. Our next story involves prominent Christian ministry leader Franklin Graham. Yeah, evangelist Franklin Graham successfully underwent uh, heart surgery on Monday uh, to treat a condition which had developed in recent months. That was according to a spokesperson, uh, Mark Barber is the name of that spokesperson, and uh, for Samaritan's Purse, which is just one of the organizations that Franklin Graham leads, uh, he said that the um, procedure took place at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Now, in recent months, the son of the late evangelist Billy Graham had developed constrictive pericarditis inflammation and hardening of the sac around the heart that compresses the heart and prevents it from working properly. The surgery involved removing the pericardium, uh, according to the statement. Graham's doctors expect a full recovery and assured him that he should be able to return to normal activity and a regular ministry schedule. As I said, uh, Graham is the president of Samaritan's Purse, but he also serves as president of the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association as well. Warren, we need to take a break, but when we return, a growing fellowship of computer experts are, you might say, hacking for Jesus, and we'll have the details. I'm Natasha Smith, along with my co-host Warren Smith. We'll be back after this short break. Hello, everyone. I'm Brittany with Save the Storks. Save the Storks is a pro-life ministry passionate about inspiring the world to reimagine the pro-life movement by serving and valuing every life. Save the Storks partners with pregnancy centers all across the U.S. to own and operate a stork bus to offer free ultrasounds and pregnancy tests to women in unplanned pregnancies. Stork buses park near college campuses, abortion clinics, shopping centers, and serve rural communities that lack medical care. Save the Storks is pleased to be the sponsor of the Ministry Watch podcast. For more information about our life-saving organization and how we partner with pregnancy resource centers around the country, go to savethestorks.com. That's savethestorks.com. Welcome back. I'm Natasha Smith, along with my co-host, Warren Smith, and you're listening to the Ministry Watch podcast. Now, up next, the story of an innovative organization that allows Christians in the technology world to use their gifts for the glory of God. Yeah, whether it's tracking the distribution of Bibles across the globe or buying up website domains to reach people searching for suicide methods on Google, the Canada-based Faith Tech aims to mobilize the tech community to build projects with the intention of what they call redeeming technology for good. The founder and CEO is a man named James Kelly, and he worked as a professional recruiter in the technology space before starting Faith Tech back in 2016. He says the organization is tapping into an underutilized population, people of faith who work in the tech industry. He said this, that many people who work in tech feel isolated and alone. 
There's a lot of disconnection, especially for Christians who struggle to live out their faith in this industry. A lot of them feel underutilized. They have incredible talents and skills to build things that influence and impact billions of people. Uh, Every organization in ministry now is impacted by technology in substantial ways, and uh, people want to know, how do I help with these unique skills? Faith Tech got its start in Canada, but is now operating here in the United States. Yeah, it began in Waterloo, Ontario, with about 35 people meeting at a local coffee shop. Today, the organization comprises 11 communities spanning from uh, Toronto to Vancouver in Canada and south here in the U.S., Silicon Valley to Chicago. They even have chapters in Bangkok, Thailand, and Malaysia. Uh, One in Japan, as a matter of fact. The groups gather regularly to discuss pertinent topics, such as the relationship between theology and technology, or how to build solutions that address digital addiction. I mean, it's really great that these professionals are getting together for fellowship, but I mean, there's thousands and perhaps even millions of people who meet in coffee shops all across the world every day. So what's different about this group? Well, it's a great question, Uh, and the answer is that these attendees at these groups, at faith tech groups, um, end up breaking up into teams uh, that actually strategize new products that they'd like to create. Faith tech has evolved from sort of a fellowship group into a business and ministry incubator. So far, five projects have spun into startups or nonprofit organizations since 2016, and in total, nearly two dozen products have wrapped up the development process and are now being used by ministry organizations or charities as part of the faith tech labs program. Another 30 projects are currently in the developmental pipeline. Can you give me an example? Well, yeah, I can. Uh, One project is called Searching for Hope, and it involves buying out hundreds of website domains that have names like howtokillyourself.org or howtobuysex.com and redirect Google searches to resources and support networks. So if you're looking how to kill yourself, you might end up on one of the faith tech sites that are reasons to not kill yourself and resources, uh, suicide prevention hotlines, that sort of thing. Uh, Now, Kelly said that in one month, volunteers spoke to 50 men seeking help from the howtobuysex.com domain. The suicide prevention website has racked up more than 16,000 visitors per month, uh, one of whom approached Kelly at an event to share the site's impact on her life, saying that she had been to one of those sites, had to look to kill herself, and instead found reasons to live. Now, other projects include Share Bibles, which track the distribution of over 100,000 Bibles worldwide. And here's one that I like, uh, Natasha, Digital Sabbath. Uh, it's a campaign to encourage people to go one day a week without any form of technology whatsoever. I love that. I could use that too. <laughs> well, absolutely. Me too. And by the way, we have descriptions of, of these projects and many others in the article that Shannon Cuthrell wrote for our website, uh, including several pandemic-related projects. It's a really fascinating piece about a fascinating group. Now, there's no doubt that technology has played a role in helping churches get through this pandemic, and you have a new survey that looks at that impact. 
Yeah, eight in 10 U.S. churches now provide hybrid services, both in person and online, offering options for congregants to either gather, if they're comfortable with that, or remaining online. Um, That's a new study by the Hartford Institute for Religion Research. Almost a quarter of churches, though, say that they have had moderate to severe conflicts within their church related to pandemic restrictions. Now, amid all of these technological adjustments, decisions about government and their own denomination's COVID-19 restrictions on gathering and greater requests for food and financial assistance, 67% of clergy, because of all of those factors that I just mentioned, said that this was the hardest year of their ministry. The new study, uh, I should add, Uh, surveyed about 2,000 churches from 38 denominations this summer. Uh, First, it's the first look that the Institute has done on the state of churches in the wake of the ongoing pandemic. And by the way, we've got more results. Again, go to ministrywatch.com to check that out. We're going to take another quick break here. When we return our weekly lightning round of ministry news, I'm Natasha Smith with my co-host Warren Smith. More in a moment. Hello, everyone. I'm Brittany with Save the Storks. Save the Storks is a pro-life ministry passionate about inspiring the world to reimagine the pro-life movement by serving and valuing every life. Save the Storks partners with pregnancy centers all across the U.S. to own and operate a stork bus to offer free ultrasounds and pregnancy tests to women in unplanned pregnancies. Stork buses park near college campuses, abortion clinics, shopping centers, and serve rural communities that lack medical care. Save the Storks is pleased to be the sponsor of the Ministry Watch podcast. For more information about our life-saving organization and how we partner with pregnancy resource centers around the country, go to savethestorks.com. That's savethestorks.com. Welcome back. I'm Natasha Smith, along with my co-host, Warren Smith, and you're listening to the Ministry Watch podcast. We like to use this last little segment as a sort of lightning round of shorter news briefs. Warren, what's up first? Well, the Louisiana College, which is a college down in, um, you might guess, Louisiana, has changed the name of that institution to Louisiana Christian University. Uh, The name has been filed and reserved with the Louisiana Secretary of State, and the official announcement will be made at the Louisiana Baptist Convention. You remember I said that in the fall, a lot of the states have their uh, conventions in the Southern Baptist Convention. That happens on November 16th, and um, so they'll officially make the name change then. Well, I'm sure changing the name of a college is a pretty big deal, but why is this in the news beyond the college's community? Well, the story caught my attention, Natasha, for a couple of reasons. For one thing, a lot of people didn't know that Louisiana College was, in fact, a Christian college or that it was affiliated with the Louisiana Baptist Convention. Uh, Louisiana College, after all, could be a state school uh, based just purely on the name. This name change and the publicity around it makes it plain that it truly is a Christian college. Now, why I think that's important is this. A lot of folks have been running away from the Christian name in recent years, but this college is running 
towards it. In fact, Rick Brewer, who is the president of the college, uh, said this, uh, this is in keeping with our mission of being Christ-centered. It's a logical move. We are not throwing away our past. In fact, we're recognizing that this school has always been Christian. Changing the name of the school from a college to a university also uh, communicates maybe something new about the school, and that is that it offers graduate programs. It's the kind of move that more and more colleges, including Christian colleges, are going to have to make in the years ahead to survive. Why is that? Well, because the number of traditional college-age students, which we might define as between, say, between 18 and 22 or 23 years old, is just getting a lot smaller. Demography is destiny, especially when it comes to colleges and universities. Colleges that serve only that traditional age group will find the competition becoming increasingly fierce. Colleges that survive will be offering more graduate programs and more programs for non-traditional students, older students perhaps, or maybe more online courses. Our next story highlights some survey results about evangelicals and their giving behavior. Yeah, the new study is called The Generosity Factor, Evangelicals and Giving, and it's a new study from Infinity Concepts and Gray Matter Research. Uh, They estimate that only 13% of Protestants, about one in eight, do uh, give in amounts that come anywhere close to tithing. The biblical norm for tithing is 10%, but they even lowered that to 8% of household income for this particular survey. So again, only about 13% tithe, almost one in five give nothing at all. So more, and, and by the way, I'm talking about Christians who go to evangelical churches, um, more give nothing than tithe. Wow, that really doesn't sound good at all. Well, it's not, though I should add that other studies have shown that evangelicals in the aggregate do give significantly more than Americans as a whole and more than those of other religious groups. Well, perhaps, but it sounds like evangelicals still have a little ways to go. Yeah, they do. Um, About 74% of those who do give, give to their church. About 58% give to charity. 51%, so a small majority, uh, give to both church and charity. I guess you could say that's the good news. The bad news, though, again, 19% of self-identified evangelicals who are members of a church gave nothing at all last year. Now, by the way, there's a whole lot more to this survey, so much more, in fact, that I'm going to have one of the survey's project managers, Ron Sellers, with Great Matter Research, uh, back on the Ministry Watch Extra podcast next week. I've had Ron on the program before, and it's always been a fascinating conversation. You'll definitely want to hear that discussion. Our next story involves a change in leadership at a major Christian ministry. Yeah, it's the Navigators, an international evangelism and discipleship ministry that was founded in 1933. Uh, They've selected Marvin Campbell, a black Navy veteran who has been with the ministry for two decades as the new U.S. director. Uh, Campbell, though, while he may be new to this particular job, is not new to the Navigators by a long shot. He served as a U.S. field director since 2013, and he's held a variety of other assignments, including campus ministry in North Carolina, and he was instrumental in staff training as well. And I understand he's a graduate of the Naval Academy. 
Yeah, he he did graduate from the Naval Academy and served as an engineering duty officer in the Navy from 1989 to 2002. So I will use that uh, little factoid as a shout out to all of the veterans who might be listening. You and I, Natasha, are recording this on Veterans Day. In fact, um, he stayed in, Campbell stayed in in uh, the reserves until 2009. With Campbell's selection, uh, the Navigator's top U.S. leader and top international leader are both black men. International President Matua Mahani is Kenyan. And by the way, the navigators have been undergoing a quiet but steady transformation in recent years. The revenue at the navigators now tops $140 million a year, and it has 2,700 staff in more than 50 countries. And who is in the ministry spotlight this week? Well, this week we feature the Museum of the Bible, which began in 2011 to educate people about the Bible. I'm sure a lot of our listeners will know about the Museum of the Bible because we've covered them uh, quite a bit here at Ministry Watch. Uh, The museum's uh, main initiatives are, of course, the permanent museum in Washington, D.C., but they also have traveling exhibits, education, and research. Now, I should add that the Museum of the Bible is doing a lot of great work, but it has also had its share of struggles in the past few years, both financial struggles and also struggles with the collection of artifacts itself. Uh, They, in fact, during the pandemic also had to close for a while because Washington, D.C. was pretty much shut down. So that negatively impacted its financial situation. But you can read more about its financial condition as well as see all of that coverage that Ministry Watch has done on the Museum of the Bible in the last couple of years by going to our website, ministrywatch.com. The story's right on the front page. And can you tell us what ministries Christina Darnell highlighted in the Ministries Making a Difference column this week? Yeah, Bible Study Fellowship is one of those ministries, Elder Orphan Care, and Escuela para Sordos Esperanza de Vida, which is a ministry in the Dominican Republic that educates deaf children. You can read about all three of these ministries by going to Christina's column, but I left out one that I want to highlight here, and that is World Magazine. Every year, World Magazine honors someone with its Daniel of the Year Award, and this year, World honored one of its own, Joel Bells. This is the first year that World has ever chosen one of its own staff for that prestigious award, but I think it's deserved in this case. Joel Bells started World Magazine 40 years ago this year and has been advocating for pavement-pounding, biblically-grounded, truth-telling journalism ever since. And I should add, Natasha, both for you and for our listeners, in a spirit of full disclosure, that Joel Bells is a personal friend. He's been a mentor to me for more than 25 years, and I think he's done more to change the face of Christian journalism in this country than just about any other person. He certainly shaped the way that things the way that we do things here at Ministry Watch. So this is, in my view, a fitting honor for a man who's had a huge impact on the lives of me and of many. Do you have any final thoughts before we go? Well, just a reminder that there's a quick, easy, and free way that you could support this podcast, and that is simply to give us a rating on your podcast app. The more ratings we get, the more attention 
that the podcast receives from search engines, and that helps new listeners to find us. And by the way, when you give us a rating, leave a comment as well. I love reading those comments. I read every single one of them. The producers for today's program are Rich Rosal and Steve Gandy. We get database and other technical support from Kathy Guttard, Stephen DuBerry, and Casey Suddeth. Writers who contributed to today's program include Ann Stike, Steve Raby, Bob Smetana, and Shannon Cuthrill. And special thanks to Religion Unplugged for contributing materials to this week's program. I'm Natasha Smith in Colorado Springs, Colorado. And I'm Warren Smith coming to you from Charlotte, North Carolina. And you've been listening to the Ministry Watch podcast. Until next time, may God bless you.